That our industry is specialist, no one would deny, but that working in the industry can mean you probably do much more than making jewelry is probably also not a surprise. Jewelers, particularly when they engage with the industry, for example, through institutions, or organizations, can wear many hats in order to make the biggest impact on others and on the industry itself. One such an inspirational person wearing many hats well is Melanie Eddy, who is joining the BHA podcast today to discuss her career, the many things she does, what it means to connect in the industry, and much, much more. I would like to welcome Jeweler, Director of the Association for Contemporary Jewelry, writer, educator, researcher, and much more, Melanie Eddy. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> Great to be here today. Melanie, can you start by telling us a little bit more about what it is that you do? Yes. I mean, you are correct. I do wear many hats. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. But at the core of everything that I do, I'm a jeweler at the bench. So that's really where it all starts. Everything I do and have done in terms of my career has kind of stemmed from this, whether it's teaching, whether it's involvement in um, kind of sector development or various initiatives in the jewelry industry. You know, sometimes it's professional development initiatives or, you know, more recently kind of fostering fellowship and networking amongst makers, in particular right now, uh, makers of color. And you're right, I have written (laughs) on jewelry and I still do. And I've also done exhibition, installation and curation I have taught, I think it's about seven years now, I think. I do teach at St. John's St. Martin's on the MA Design um, program. So that's MA Design, Ceramics, Furniture and Jewelry. Obviously, I teach on the jewelry pathway part of that, (laughs) as well as other kind of teaching capacities over the years, whether it's community-based short courses or, I guess, skills enhancement or kind of teaching secondments abroad. That's kind of, in a nutshell, me, I guess, like teaching in the broader sense, probably for about 12 years or so. So that's kind of sums up to some extent, most of the things I'm involved in. I might be leaving out some bits, but that's kind of the kind of the basics. You say it at the beginning, and I think it's, it's really interesting, perhaps to start there. You are a really accomplished jeweler and you are well known for your pieces. What made you decide to become a jeweler? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and people do ask me this, you know, I, and I will tell you kind of a bit of the root of how I got there, but in a way I feel like jewelry found me in a sense. I always wasn't really interested in jewelry, but I don't think I immediately thought about the possibility of me doing jewelry. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So art was one of my favorite subjects at school. And as I kind of was coming towards the end of my kind of schooling in terms of like high school per per se, I spent actually used to spend quite a lot of my free time like painting, (laughs) painting in my room. But I didn't really know. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in terms of a career. And I kind of didn't really have the confidence to pursue um, like arts or fine art you know, at a university level. So I kind of chickened out about that. I thought I thought about doing it and I kind of was like, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough. Or also I was a bit unsure about the ability to, to kind of support myself as a fine artist. But because I was always interested in like reading and writing, 
I ended up going into like a liberal arts degree and that happened in in Canada so I studied in um, London Ontario and you know I was studying things like English politics international development sociology like this kind of area and I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do with that. I, I, I mean, I thought about international development. I thought about different areas. But luckily for me, <laughs> the summer before I set off to go to university, I was undertaking a summer job for a local art foundation called the Masterworks Foundation. And because of where I was located doing this summer job, my mom had sent me on some errands. Like, I think it was in my lunch hour or something. Uh, to go and pick up some jewelry repairs for her from a local jeweler in Bermuda. And that kind of chance errand or chance encounter is really kind of what ended up being the, the little life moment <laughs> that led me to a career in jewelry. The owner there, his name's Chet Trot, and, you know, he has a very busy business. You know, I was having to wait to pick up these pieces like he was dealing with some other people. And I kind of asked him some questions about some of the things that were in the displays because I had had time to kind of like, you know, investigate them further. And he kind of could see that I was interested and he was like asking me some questions and he said, oh, you seem like you're quite interested. And I said, oh, you know, I made some jewelry at high school, you know, like this kind of thing, not really thinking much about it. And he said, oh, well, why don't you bring it in to show, you know, show us, are you interested to find out a bit more about what we do here and I was like yes so I took some pieces in I think the pieces I took in were pieces I'd made from glass and uh yeah so I kind of went in and then I ended up working there so I already had a summer job and I ended up working there on Saturdays that summer so I was working like six days <laughs> six days that summer and kind of from there on fell more and more interested and engaged with the jewelry sector uh, but I didn't know I was going to do that necessarily it wasn't until towards the end of like my actually my final year of studying at university that the penny kind of dropped and I realized I wanted to work in jewelry and so when I when I finished my program I came back to work for him for a short period of time and then ended up kind of going and working for another company and you know kind of went from there but it's it's quite funny actually that I arrived at jewelry because I do remember when I was in high school, I used to spend like um, my lunch hour, like pouring over the books on gems and jewelry in the school library. But I just don't think, I guess it was so far out of my comprehension that I might have a career coming from a small place like Bermuda. You know, I didn't know about studying certain types of areas or fields. So it didn't really occur to me that I would that I could make some of those pieces or that I would have a career doing that until this kind of weird kind of coincidence kind of circuitous route like eventually led me to it. I wonder, you know, having someone that accessible and having a look behind the scenes, because like you say, when you think about jewelry through the way it's portrayed through books and the way we engage with it through advertisement and it's such a different experience to know what it feels like to make it. Yeah. Then it looks like when it's actually portrayed and photoshopped on a white background. And I wonder whether those kinds of experiences are important. I mean, for sure. I mean, if I hadn't have had that interaction with Chet, I don't think I would be sitting here talking to you about my career in jewelry right now that accessibility I think was really important and 
I was lucky, but I think because he was somebody who had come to jewelry, probably not in the most normal way. The company actually used to be owned by British Brothers.、Uh, they actually came back to the UK later on, and they set up a casting company called Niagara Falls Casting. You know, he worked for them when he was quite young, and then built up his skills and training. And so, when they were ready to leave and sell the business, like he ended up buying the business, you know, from them. So I think that you know he probably recognized somebody who was local, had a bit of artistic kind of background, had some interest, and thought, oh, I don't see too many people like that. I think I was lucky that he opened up his business, and and in a way he showed me also so many over that summer and subsequent like kind of summers and holidays when I used to work there. He opened up kind of so many different aspects of what it means to. Make like different parts of jewelry, and also like about the other stuff you need to do, <laughs> you know, to run a jewelry business. Like, I mean, I was lucky because Bermuda is, it, because it's a bit isolated.、Uh, most jewelry businesses there do a lot of the processes if they're that set up in a way. Like his, his setup was, they do a lot of the processes themselves. So. You know, all the casting was done there. We used to make our own jump rings. We didn't like buy jump rings. We used to have to melt the gold down into ingots, and then we had to draw it in the draw plate, and then we had to pull it, and then eventually get to the right thickness, and then you had to you to make oval ones or circular ones. And so I guess I had quite a traditional introduction to like you know aspects of making. That maybe、uh, you wouldn't normally come across. That kind of, for me, it actually instilled a real love of the craft, the craftsmanship of it. So to the extent that later on, when I moved to working for other businesses or another business, because by that point I had like a university degree, and they were trying to get me into more of the other side, you know, the business side of things, and they were like, "Oh, don't you want to do this and that and travel, and you can help us be a buyer and all this stuff?" And I was like, "No, I want to be on the bench. I want to be making." <laughs> Stuff. Yeah, so I think like that's that's really kind of lit that fire for me in terms of working、uh, with the different techniques and and working with precious metals. Really, you mentioned that you've lived in many places and sort of trained in many places:、uh, Bermuda, Canada, New York, even and of course London. Yeah. Do you think these places have influenced the development of your aesthetics as well as your appreciation for craft and making? Yeah, in some in some regards, yes. I think sometimes it's not consciously like you know it's a bit like influential, but not like I'm not always completely aware of how much it's you know influenced me. From an experiential point of view, definitely, I would say sometimes there's elements like, for example, when people think of Bermuda, or they think of like places like Bermuda, they think like very kind of particular things about like. Beautiful waters and like flowers and very tropical kind of environments,、um, and that's totally accurate. But I think when you're from somewhere like that, it's for me there's this starkness to life in the middle of the Atlantic on a very small island that supersedes a lot of the kind of tropical or subtropical stuff. So you know, yeah, there's bright colors, there's flowers, there's all these waters, but you know, the architecture is very clean and minimalistic. You know, it's It's designed to keep us cool. It's designed to withstand storms and kind of very strong winds. And I think because the light is very bright there, there's a lot of contrast. And as I mentioned before, there's this kind of 
remoteness, you know, to being like isolated and, you know, certain times of the year in particular, like between uh, January, February and like March, there's this kind of real stormy kind of like tempestuous, like element to it. And sometimes we get hurricanes, which we didn't have, we had one not too long ago. Like I wasn't there, but my family was there. So I think there's like that underlying element to that, that I think kind of comes out maybe in some of my stuff. I think going from a small place like Bermuda to somewhere like Canada, when I first went abroad, you know, for school there, mostly it was about the scale and vastness of everything, you know, the expanse. And it was like kind of these sublime qualities, especially in the winter, you know, that I hadn't really experienced encountering cold for the first time, like that type of cold for the first time, you know, really kind of makes you think a little bit differently. Um, a lot of the stuff is a juxtaposition of things. Um, for, I guess, coming to the UK, there's so many different qualities here. And I've, I spent most of my time in the UK in London, this juxtaposition between the history of the city and the capital and the modernity. You know, it's always in these places where you've got like the, the two right next to each other, which is pretty interesting and exciting. And I think a little bit that's, that's in a way how I, how I work with metals is that I think people think of my work as quite contemporary and futuristic, but a lot of my techniques and a lot of the things I do are not overly like, I mean, there's times I experiment with things that are maybe a bit more kind of new or innovative, but generally a lot of the things I'm doing are quite like traditional techniques and quite traditional approaches to hand finishing and things like that. So even though the forms are very like kind of new, maybe like I think what I, the, the way I uh, achieve them is not always <laughs> like revolutionary or like, you know, new. And I think with New York, I don't think, I mean, I guess everyone is when you first in New York, it's like the buildings and everything and the architecture and the urban landscape. But I think for me, what New York did, because I experienced that before I came to the UK, was really open up my eyes and mind to the possibilities of what was possible within the jewelry industry, just because of the scale in which it operates there. Like, you know, I was used to like a handful of jewelers and almost like I knew everybody in the jewelry community in Bermuda and I knew what all of them did and I knew all of their skill sets and I knew kind of their offering. But like when you go to like the jewelry district in New York, it's just vast. And they're like, you know, so many people, so many different types of styles and so many different approaches. And I was like blown away really, but I like really what this industry is about. I guess it's a combination of some of it is influence my aesthetics but some of it just influenced what I thought was possible or what I believe could be possible. We've talked about your experience of meeting someone that enabled you to see the industry from a different perspective whether this is the driving force maybe also behind your active involvement in the in the jewelry industry by being a maker and designer as well as a teacher a writer and the director of the association for contemporary jewelry and I want to ask what other driving forces were there for you to take on these additional roles, be very visible within the industry for others as well? I didn't know that there were so many different ways to be involved in the jewelry industry at first. So I think I had a very simplistic view of what it meant to work in jewelry. You were either making the jewelry or you were part of the process of making the jewelry. You were selling the jewelry or you were owned a business, or you might have been a gemologist or a designer. And that was kind of like, I, that's for me, I didn't really know too many other, or, or maybe you were selling stones, I think, or something like that, or stringing or beading, you know. So 
I think when I came here and I understood the depth and breadth of the industry and all the different ways that you can interact with it and all these other like kind of associations and different types, like almost even like the, you know, critical theory and like discussion around like what is contemporary jewelry now and all this, I did, that was, a lot of that was new to me. So I just kind of said yes to lots of things. <laughs> and I just, the more things I found out about, the more things I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go to that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Well, a lecture on this? Well, that's cool. Or an exhibition on, you know, so I think I just kind of threw myself into it, kind of both feet, and just immersed myself, I guess, essentially. And then I think the roles kind of ended up finding me because I was quite enthusiastic and quite interested. Like, I was just genuinely interested <laughs> in these things. So I think, you know, when if you're looking for people to be involved and put their time in, in voluntary capacities, you want people that are enthusiastic. So I think <laughs> that's kind of how a lot of them kind of came about. You know, I love jewelry, but I got to love the actual industry. And I got to like meet so many interesting, amazing people, got to understand more about, you know, how transformative the industry is in regards to like careers and different types of possibilities. And that's something I didn't know about. So I guess I just became more engaged with different aspects of it because I was just thinking, wow, this is really interesting. And for example, I ended up being able to travel like, you know, and work uh, in jewelry abroad. And if someone had said that to me, like back when I was first interested in working in it, I would have been like, what? I'm gonna travel and do what? Like, no, that's like people do that that are doing like infrastructure or they're doing these other things. I don't, like that's, this jewelry's not about those things, you know. I just kept understanding and learning more and more about really what it was tied to in terms of economic growth, in terms of like, you know, sector development, in terms of like creative economy, business and entrepreneurial activities. Like I just got to learn more and more about the different ways that people could engage with it and build businesses and, make livelihoods, I guess. Yeah. So you've taken on this role as one of the directors of the Association for Contemporary Jewelry. And perhaps for people who don't know what the association does and how they could get involved, what are the benefits of joining an association and what does it mean to be part of one? There's quite a few different types of associations that you can be involved in in regards to jewelry. And some of them are very specifically around makers or around um, different types of industry kind of professionals but the association for contemporary jewelry which is the one that you the role that you're talking you've been talking about um, so the key is that it's called the association for contemporary jewelry so um, and that means that we have a vast range of different types of people that are engaged with us as members so it's true a large proportion of our membership are makers. Usually it's, you know, designer makers to have like a small business or they're, you know, self-sufficient essentially. But we also have uh, gallerists, we have collectors, we have educators and academics. So we have like a real range of people that are our membership and not just in the UK, but also like globally. And I think it's really, you know, a lot of the things we're looking at is pulling together people around, you know, what contemporary jewelry is, why we're interested in contemporary jewelry, what's happening with contemporary jewelry, who's doing what with contemporary jewelry, you know, and discussions and engaging with all kind of elements of what's happening in that space, really. The thing that's interesting about that space is that there's, very, there's so many different approaches and viewpoints to how we 
how we consider or what we consider to be contemporary jewelry. And I think in the jewelry space in general, it's quite hard because there's a lot of labels and and they're not always helpful. You know, um, fine jewelry, demi fine jewelry, you know, high jewelry, uh, costume jewelry, <laughs> like artist jewelry, studio jewelry. You know, there's so many different. And and I think sometimes people can feel kind of pigeonholed or siloed in particular spaces. And often if you're working with certain types of materials, like, you know, you might want to be more experimental, but if you're working with precious metals and people automatically kind of put you in the fine jewelry camp, even if you're really wanting to push the boundaries a little bit. I think one of the things that's interesting about associations like the ACJ is that we can engage, you know, with those kinds of questions and we can kind of, in a way, like open up the dialogue about you know, what we're, what we're doing when we're creating pieces of jewelry now with different materials. I have an exhibition on at the moment, an online exhibition that's very much targeted around um, looking at environmental impact of some of the materials we use in jewelry. So I think, yeah, it's just a, it's just a place to, for people to come together, some often to exhibit together, you know, to have uh, discussions and uh, engage with kind of dialogue around what we're doing in jewelry now. You also disseminate a lot of these conversations, even to perhaps those who are not necessarily attending meetings, etc. You have the Findings magazine, which is, I would say, really high quality for for an association. You know, it's really great to read it. Yeah, I was going to say, and at times, dependent on um, funds, you know, we also have. I mean, at the moment, we're trying to figure out how we're going to continue with elements of this aspect of it but at times we've also um, had various awards that we give usually we have a college award that's given which is a free membership for a year to like recent graduate you know every year uh, we have like travel grants for um, people to who are looking to expand their practice by a travel experience relating to a particular project or some exploration that they want to do professional development grants as well which um can facilitate training or facilitate um, research um, into particular areas. So uh, when we're able to, we also try to support uh, makers with how they can take their practice forward in different ways. That's fantastic to know. So in theory, it's good to engage with an association, not just so that you can connect with others and you can engage in, in topics that are important to the industry but also because there might be some opportunities to be supported and do things that you might not be able to otherwise yeah and we also have historically over time i mean the groups kind of shift and move around depending on who's living where but we also have smaller regional groups as well and they're oftentimes for people to meet up maybe in groups of like eight or ten or depending on how big the group is. I mean, at times we've had groups that are quite large and kind of organize their own events that are more specific to where they're located, you know, and they can have maybe guest workshops or like small seminars or kind of meetings. Um, Sometimes it's just to meet up and go to exhibitions together and have a bit of a chat afterwards and discuss like what we've seen and, uh, you know, have some engagement. You know, sometimes depending on how you're working, you might be like kind of in your studio by yourself a lot. <laughs> and, you know, outside of maybe seeing your family and immediate friends, maybe you don't have as much engagement around discussing like the topics that you're working, you know, that we're working on. So meeting up with other kind of jewelers or makers, or even it could be people, like I said, that are run a gallery or something to talk, talk about things of interest can kind of be helpful. And I guess support 
you know, having that community of people around you that are passionate about the same things and perhaps also dealing with the same challenges given, you know, our current circumstances, that might be really nice. And sometimes it's just questions like, you know, we have like forums, uh, we have like kind of, you know, our Facebook and LinkedIn pages where people can like post questions uh, or, you know, if they're unsure about an approach to something, you know, normally somebody will have the answer. (laughs) Just to touch upon, you know, the magazine and you also write for this magazine and for other sources. How has writing become a part of your practice as well? For me, I, I've, you know, I, I enjoy writing and I've kind of always enjoyed writing. So, and my, because I had, I guess, in a way, writing is a, is a little bit about confidence. Like often we write things for ourselves, right? Like most of us sometimes at various points in our lives, we write things for ourselves, but we don't often write or share our writings with other people. Like all of us, nor- most people I think are, have some, you know, have pretty good competence in terms of writing really. But it's just, most of us think of it as something very specific to like an author or a writer who happens to like, you know, have that as a full-time profession. But it is just a form of community, just another form of communication really. And I guess because I had um, done a, an undergraduate degree that had a lot of writing involved in it, and involved a lot of writing. Maybe I had a bit more confidence about that because I had been so used to doing it. And I think that's something where, you know, I think a lot, I would love if people were more open with their writing and shared more um, of their thoughts through that format, because I think there's lots of things to be gained from people sharing, like, you know, using that platform. So I guess for me, I've, I've always liked to kind of write as a way to explore thoughts and ideas. And so I guess it just became more formalized because, you know, I was being asked to write. Initially, it might have been short things like exhibition reviews or book reviews. Uh, and, then I, and then it kind of grew into, um, you know, features or interviewing people. I think one of the first t- times where I really felt like uh, a bit more pressure, I guess, was because uh, some years ago, it was a long time ago now, there was, a, I think it was a joint joint winners of the Jerwood. And so I had to interview them basically. So I had to go and talk to them and then I had to write up the interview. And then I was like, okay, this is a lot of work. (laughs) So, and then I guess it kind of grew from there. And what writing allows me to do is it kind of allows me to explore and engage with the critical kind of thinking aspect of it. And when you're asked to do it for, whether it's an online publication or a print publication, and you're asked to do it more formally, it kind of allows you to kind of open that up because you're because you you kind of sharing your thoughts, but then you're also facilitating engagement for other people to read it and then have their own thoughts and opinions on what you're kind of saying. And so I think one of the things that I like about writing about jewelry in general or reading about jewelry in general is that not you know, with a lot of us have a real interest in jewelry in all aspects of it, but we're not always in a position to to buy jewelry or patronize the people that we, whose jewelry we, um, we like or we appreciate. So reading and, you know, reading about it allows everyone to have a perspective and to kind of, um, and to kind of share ideas about how they feel about jewelry. Because even if you don't write the piece and you're reading the piece, you might discuss it with someone else who has read it. And so I kind of, I like that, that aspect of kind of writing about jewelry and 
I guess, us reading about jewelry through books and through articles or even blogs kind of is another way to discover and kind of engage with jewelry outside of like seeing it in a gallery or in a shop or owning it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it, it just opens it up really to, to like, you know, having a bit more insight and thoughts about different pieces. Yeah, that's really true. I agree with you entirely. You know, you have won awards, you have judged awards quite regularly. Do you feel as a maker, it's important to go for things like that for competitions? And maybe as a recent graduate as well, you know, what do you feel would be the main benefits of, of engaging in, in submitting your work to a competition or an award? Well, it's a couple of things. <laughs> but I think, I think, what people often think of mostly when they think about awards is that it's a way to gain recognition. So, and yes, that is true. <laughs> it, it can help you with that. But I think there's other benefits and other bonuses to being engaged with those processes that can be more beneficial than the recognition. And I think one is it's always interesting and always helpful to, because usually if you're, if you're submitting for an award, usually there's some kind of brief that's involved, right? You know, you'll have to channel your submission or your approach according to a structure or according to like, you know, a clear set of guidelines or instructions. And learning to work in that way effectively is really important part of building a professional practice. So that's the main thing. Um, and you can practice it if you're not, say, at the stage where you're um, thinking about designing for someone else or you are working with commissions or clients where you have to deal with those types of situations. It's a good way to practice how you can negotiate through those types of structures. So that's the first thing. But also, I think that it can help you in terms of developing and expanding your practice. So you can challenge yourself. Uh, maybe to do something that you wouldn't have done if this particular like, you know, submission or award had come up. Those two elements, I think, are probably more valuable in the long run than the more obvious benefits of the recognition or of getting the attention of influential industry bodies or individuals. And I think that's because that's often what people think about when they think about awards. They think about the recognition. They think about getting their name out there uh, in front of important people, basically. <laughs> so, yes. Okay, that's great. But I think it's other things that actually long term are more helpful for you in terms of building a professional practice and in terms of kind of challenging yourself as an artist or as a designer, or as a maker, depending on how you view, you know, yourself, because they're, they're going to be different types of submissions. You've been working on a lot of jewelry sector initiatives surrounding professional development for emerging makers also in South Asia since 2010, primarily in Afghanistan. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about this, the project, and sort of what brought it on as well? Because that's really amazing. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with the kind of first thing, which was the work in Afghanistan, which was quite funny because like, I mean, it, when you say that, it, you make me sound like quite intrepid. But at the time, though, I wasn't really somebody who had like, I mean, outside of like traveling for work and study, you know, I travel with my family, but I wasn't like a big, you know, solo traveler. And so I think there were some friends that were like, well, couldn't you have gone on a gap year or something? Why did you have to like skip 
like this other traveling and go straight to like, you know, Afghanistan, <laughs> you just kind of missed a couple of steps in terms of your like, you know, experience as a traveler. <laughs> but I just kind of went, yeah, I guess I just was like, oh, well, the British Council, they had this program called the New Silk Road program. And actually, that was a lot of programs that were to do with exchanges. So they were to do with like creative exchanges in different regions, different uh, countries along like, I guess, this, you know, the Silk Route. So mostly in South Asia. And, you know, I think it was like Pakistan, maybe Kazakhstan, you know, there was a lot of like different countries. And it wasn't all jewelry specifically, it was just to do with creative practices. So, you know, textiles, um, accessories, kind of installation, you know, different types of things. And they had this kind of possibility to do work with an organization and an institution uh, in terms of like an educational institution in Afghanistan. But they, but because of the context, they needed to approach this particular exchange a bit differently. So, and I, for me, when I first read about it, I was interested in this exchange element of it. I thought, oh, that's really cool. If I go, then somebody from Afghanistan will come to the UK. So, but it was actually going to needed to adjust and be, so it ended up being more of like a teaching secondment because they needed somebody who had some teaching experience to, to do it. So I was approached to kind of spend a couple of months at this um, organization called Turquoise Mountain. And that was set up by, at the time, President Karzai in Afghanistan and Prince Charles from here through like Prince's Trust. And they had a couple of different areas that they were, they were kind of working on calligraphy and like in you know, a fine miniature painting, woodworking, both architectural woodwork, as well as like carvings and like objects and furniture, gem cutting, uh, ceramics and jewelry. So I was kind of tasked to come and do some work uh, with the gems and jewelry department of the of what was called the Turquoise Mountain Institute. So, um, and they were doing a lot of regeneration as well within the old this old part of Kabul in Afghanistan. They uh, they had a city and guilds program they were running, and they were also in the process of defining a curriculum for a, a high school level kind of qualifications as well. So I was going to go and do some work specifically around design and in particular around research methodologies so that students could kind of have a bit more insight into how they formulate their concepts and their ideas. That's kind of what I went to work on initially. I did do some practical workshops with them around wax carving and some other things and looking at how to translate like um, more traditional kind of motifs and artifacts into like contemporary kind of interpretations. So that was the start of it. And then I kind of had this relationship with Turquoise Mountain and later on ended up doing work when they started moving, moving more into the business development side when they had recent graduates and they had these incubator kind of spaces and they were working with helping kind of emerging kind of talent to create their own small businesses. And then that led to brokering kind of collaborations with international designers who wanted to work with these young uh, makers to like develop collections and pieces together. So that, that ended up kind of happening. And then I ended up getting involved in another program that um, was called Future Brilliance. 
And that was to take a bunch of jewelers and gem cutters from Afghanistan to India for skills uh, enhancement and training. So I was involved everything from the kind of proposal stage of that to kind of getting it up and running in Jaipur. And mostly it was in Jaipur. There was elements of it there in Delhi. There was a whole curriculum that we developed of training with this institute called the IIJG or IIGJ in Jaipur. And then they also had work experience afterwards there. And so that was really interesting. And then that led to some interesting developments in terms of because one of the elements that I was really keen on was this exchange of someone coming back. And as the situation developed there, that became very difficult for us to, <laughs> to follow through on. And I just was like really frustrated about that aspect because I kind of felt like it wasn't really fair. And so over a couple of years, at first, I worked with Vicky Sarge, who's based in Belgravia, to bring a small selection of work from Afghanistan to London for a small exhibition in her shop there, which was really great. Like a hundred percent of the profits, like bar, like the cost of getting this stuff, <laughs> like, went to the makers in Afghanistan and it was really successful. They sold really well. And then a couple years later, I was asked to curate a larger exhibition for the British Council, which brought jewelry as well as cut gemstones from Afghanistan to the UK. It was an exhibition of contemporary jewellery and gems. And it was really about change at the time. It was about changing the narrative in the news. A lot of the stuff we were seeing in the news was pretty um, focused around insurgency and things that were happening there. And we wanted to show that there was other really interesting things happening in terms of repatriation and people coming back to Afghanistan that had lived abroad and who were really invested in bringing the culture back and looking at like kind of the arts and kind of creative like pursuits and, and really kind of really a lot of energy and enthusiasm was going into that sector. And so we wanted to show uh, what was happening there. So that, and that was in London first, and then later on it went to Edinburgh. Wow. In the times that we are today, where obviously due to COVID, suddenly countries that normally would never close their borders, closed their borders. And with all this nationalist thinking, you know, protecting your own citizens. And I understand that there are lots of reasons why countries want to do that because they have no control over other, other countries necessarily. But this idea of thinking globally and, and us being makers across the world, there is makers and, and people with talents across the world. And these projects that you have worked on are a showcase of that. And I just wish there were more of them. I know. It's really interesting. I mean, I'm, like there was other stuff which I wasn't as engaged with in terms of like the, the length of engagement, but there were similar projects happening in Pakistan. So I did some work with the Aga Khan Foundation development foundation in Pakistan and that was looking at some areas which are doing some work in some areas which are really you know have had a history of disruption uh, I guess you could say and instability both of these countries all these countries are rich in gemstones and minerals and it's about creating agency in the country so that like the material isn't just leaving the countries and you're actually starting to build up designers and all different levels of people working in in the sector so that the GDP and all those, all that kind of keeps in the country, it doesn't just go out of the country because we know the more that people are engaged at the different levels within the country, 
the more it builds skilled and you know innovative thinkers and designers and you know and there a lot of people have you know there's just the opportunity hasn't been there in the past but they are totally uh capable and totally uh full of interesting ideas that are contextually close to what their market is as opposed to like the local market always looking outside for buying jewelry why not kind of foster your own designers and kind of thinkers in that space so that's what a lot of these projects have been about but i know what you mean it's a bit sad like at the moment because what was starting to happen was a lot of this knowledge exchange happening across you know cultural boundaries and why it was interesting was because in some of these situations there was a lot of tension you know because you know you're talking about countries that have had to deal with conflict for for various reasons and if you can bring people to work together for a shared aim and objective often you know you can learn a lot about different people and you can challenge perceptions you might have on both sides you know by doing projects like this so that was one of the really kind of beneficial things i think that was happening in a lot of professional relationships um and so it's a bit hard and and also often with these things you know you can meet up online and you can talk but it's not until you're actually living in the place and you're kind of having your day-to-day like experiences eating meals sharing food you know with people that you get to really have an understanding of their perspective and i think that's one of the things that i'm a bit worried about in terms of where we're moving to now for me i don't i wouldn't have had the opportunity to travel to some of these places outside of a work experience i didn't have the funds to go on you know world travel around some of these places through the work i was doing i was able to experience and get to know more about people working in a similar way that I was working but somewhere else completely different and that's the thing that was really interesting is understanding that and in, in, in we shared so there were so many things we shared in terms of like our approaches and our like excitement and enthusiasm and i found i had so much in common with people that to me previously would have seen seemed so different you know but actually like fundamentally underneath it weren't actually that different that i think that's a really important thing for us to do right now and i think the problem with things like covid is that what comes in with it part and parcel with it is fear and i think fear is 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 can be really dangerous in terms of putting up barriers in lots of ways so yeah we i think we have a lot of work to do to try and like kind of keep the fear out <laughs> or mitigate it or minimize it as much as possible so that we don't lose some of the great connections that we were starting to um have made yeah because i mean with covid what it has been really interesting to see is that there's been incredible amounts of webinars and a lot more communication across continents but let's face it we are connecting more of the people that have the capacity to already connect anyway but we're losing out even more on those who we might not necessarily be able to connect with some groups are becoming more and more isolated that's the that's a difficulty yeah i agree you are actively engaged in actually really hugely important initiatives to create a more inclusive and diverse jewelry industry would you like to share you know what you have been up to for those initiatives also within the UK in particular perhaps and how you would like to get other people involved is there ways that other people should really be engaging one of the things that's really good 
about right now is that we've been able to gain some traction on some of these like issues. So I think it's something that a lot of people or a lot of industries or a lot of organizations or institutions are aware of and have been aware of for some time. And it's been on the agenda. It's there's been, you know, maybe thoughts and headspace around starting to strategize and approach what we might be doing about those. But I don't know if that was very much tangible action happening until quite recently, if I'm honest, <laughs> in terms of my experiences. Um, and one of the things that's really good about right now is that people are actually um, moving it from being on the agenda to prioritizing it to being nearer to the top of things that we need to be actively working on, which is great. I'm very happy to see that happen. And it's on a couple of different fronts. I mean, there's basically one of the things that in terms of the different groups and the different discussions that I am a part of and that I've been involved in, both within uh, higher education and also within industry, uh, whether it's here in the UK or it's uh, across the pond in the US, is looking at the barriers to entry in terms of the industry. So, and that's one of the areas that I'm really interested in looking at. And that's both in terms of barriers to entry in terms of higher education or in terms of vocational training, but it's also in terms of barriers to entry in the wider sense in terms of how different people are supported and, and championed and represented in the press, in, um, you know, on various platforms, you know, through retail opportunities, like there's lots of different ways that we can look at this. So, so some of the things that we're working on and that we're looking at right now is around communication. So it's around who has access to information and how people find out about opportunities and how people find out about what's possible in terms of different types of careers and different kinds of jobs. And the reality is that often the people that find out or understand about these opportunities or these options are people who would find out about them anyway. It's, it's, it tends to be a very small group that they already have quite an expanded world vision. The world is their oyster, so to speak. And it's not the information about different ways to engage with the industry and different ways to have a practice as either an artist or as a designer or in a more kind of professional capacity in various elements of the industry, that information isn't really reaching certain types of communities and certain people within those communities. Uh, we need to look at why that's the case. So as part of some of the organizations I'm involved in, uh, we've been looking at how, why that's happening and how we can change that. One of the ways is through engaging with people at a younger age. So engaging with people in at high schools and looking at the current programs that are engaging high school students in regards to the arts or the creative industries or craft or design and looking at how, how we can adapt or change those programs to, to include metalwork and jewelry focus and looking at the types of schools that might already be engaging with that and other types of schools and programs who might not have that kind of discussion or might not have those programs running in them. So broadening the scope in terms of where these things are offered, in particular looking at students who, because of various challenges, might end up being excluded from that. So say, for example, if they have had suspensions or expulsions 
and they get to a stage where they're in a different type of school system than a standard school system or even like you know and that's even different from say a private you know kind of school system that they might not get access to some of the programs and some of the extracurricular engagement or interventions which might allow them to understand about these kinds of options so that's we're working with a couple of organizations that already work i'm not going to say because it's still early very early stages who work in this space about how we might be able to broaden who finds out information about working in jewelry so that's one thing <laughs> another thing is building up support from within the industry so how we can subsidize people who may not be able to afford to go into higher education or going to vocational training for these for this sector through scholarships through grants through um, helping them to cover their expenses when they move into cities or move to places where they can access higher education programs specifically in jewelry another thing that we're looking at is internships and mentorships and often with internships they're unpaid which means that the people that end up doing the internships are people who have uh, financial support or in some way are supported to be able to undertake work that's unpaid for a period of time so that basically means people who have to work on leaving high school pretty much are ruled out for some of those roles because they aren't able to to take them on because they need to generate an income for whatever reason uh, quite quickly. So we're looking at how creating more of these kinds of internships, if they can't be funded through the organization or the company that's offering the internship, how that could be subsidized by outside funding so that uh, it can open it up to people who who need to have some type of uh, income to support them while they're undertaking those types of opportunities. And then we're also looking at how we support graduates uh, once they leave university so that they perform well in the space. So whether that's mentorship, whether that's um, business advice and support, whether that's grants for equipment or grants for um, realizing collections. So we're looking at things like that. In addition to also like different types of support that might be required. And also in terms of retail opportunities, it's often hard to get into certain types of spaces. That whole landscape is changing. So it might not necessarily be in a shop. It might be retail opportunities online. Um, you know, there might be a cost associated with those, which we might have to look at how we can support people then eventually we'll look at how we can support people to expand their business to international export so whether that's funding um, people going to international fairs or international showcases so they can meet buyers and clients from elsewhere so there's a couple different spaces that different people working on this in throughout the UK, but also um, we're also looking at fostering links with organizations in the US for knowledge exchange so that we can like, you know, what's working in one place, maybe we can learn something from that and apply it here, vice versa, like what, you know, so that we can start to build up uh, in a way, uh, a strategy for how we can um, kind of open up uh, opportunities within the industry. I hope that kind of gives you a bit of an idea. It's fantastic. I mean, it's regrettable what has had to happen for it to be propelled to the front of the agenda. 
but that it has is great and that I think you know just wanted to do a shout out to the panel you hosted for the Goldsmith Center during the fair for other people to, who have missed it to watch it you invited a range of speakers who have all pretty much had different ways of entering the industry and it's a real great example of how there is no set pathway to become a jeweler. Yeah we had some that come through the apprenticeship route, one that had come through kind of university route and then two others that had come from a completely different background and were self-taught essentially through a series of short courses and different types of programs So, and also experience, you know, one had experience within retail, another had experience in a completely different capacity uh, in a different uh, industry, a different field, and then translated some of those skills that were transferable across. So I think, and they're all obviously, you know, doing incredibly well. So it just goes to show you that, you know, that if you have the kind of determination and the resolve and the kind of stick-to-itiveness, as I like to say, (laughs) that you can kind of forge ahead. Because I am in the education space and because I happen to work in higher education, I just I just want to make it clear that there's lots of roots into this industry. It doesn't have to be through higher education. It's just I happen to be in that space. And there's lots of people who have lots of interesting things to offer the jewelry industry and this field that come into jewelry from various different places and acquire their skills in lots of different ways. Essentially, there's lots of different approaches and there isn't like one particular way that you have to do things. I think the main thing is to be persistent and to continue to push your practice forward and to learn and to engage. And how you do that is up to you. It doesn't have to be through one particular way. So I just wanted to say that. And that's the thing that people often don't think about when they talk about diversity and they talk about initiatives around diversity is it's often focused on the benefits for those from diverse backgrounds. But actually, what the real diversity actually benefits everybody. I've noticed that, you know, people from different backgrounds kind of coming together and working together expands everyone's kind of experience. And so in often it's it's in, in different ways, whether it's with um, having a peer or a colleague from different backgrounds or whether it's having someone who's a teacher from a different background you know changes or challenges your notions or your perceptions around who can hold knowledge and who can disseminate knowledge so i think it's like it's it's a way it's like a win-win for everyone basically I can only attest to that, having taught classes to hugely diverse student groups, there is a very clear benefit. Having different perspectives just enriches the experience, right? A hundred percent. Melanie, thanks so much. I think what you've just given us is a fantastic overview of the breadth of work that's taking place. And it's really inspirational. I think everyone should find ways to get involved somehow to contribute to it, because if we're all supporting it, then it's going to become real and that's what we want yeah and sometimes it's really simple sometimes it doesn't have to be on a big scale sometimes it's as simple as sharing a good setter or sharing a good if you're maker or sharing a good supplier uh you know if you find a new supplier who's really great in terms of in terms of traceability and like you know ethics then maybe share that or post about it you know um i think sometimes it's just helping you know 
checking in on somebody, how they're doing. I think it's, it can, doesn't have to be or sharing a good book recommendation. You know, it, it doesn't have to be like uh, on the scale of like, you know, like some big like structural thing. It can, it can literally just be like meeting up with someone for a coffee and checking up on them, having a, having a Zoom call you know, if people are feeling a bit isolated, you know, that kind of thing can help as well. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I have one last question for you. And that is, what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything that you're willing to share that's not top secret? And where can we go to see what your work is currently moving towards? And we just want to watch what you're doing. So, I mean, I did, I did kind of intimate to some extent some of the things I'm working on. One of the initiatives that I'm working on is called the Jewelry Futures Fund, and that's going to be working on some of the things that we're talking about and more information that will be coming. It's the group of us working on that, and more information will be coming out about that soon. There's also a group in New York, or I guess kind of based around New York, but it's actually throughout the U.S., a BIPOC group. Uh, so BIPOC is the equivalent of like kind of fame here in the U.K., so it's Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color group in uh, in the U.S. that is kind of working together to create and sustain opportunities for makers from those backgrounds. There's also a new Black in Jewelry Coalition forming in the U.S., which is pretty exciting and pretty interesting. I am on the advisory board for that organization. There will be some more things coming out. It's literally quite like news. And at the moment, um, I have a bunch of commissions that are kind of in progress some are taking longer than probably they should because I'm spending so many time <laughs> so much time writing and talking on panels but luckily I have some patient patient clients so um, I have actually a number of them that I'm working on really interesting because a number of them are colored stones which I really enjoy working with so I'm pretty excited about that I'm finally trying to get a new website out which has been in the works for like years that is coming out and that will have basically a little bit more about the different elements of my practice. So it'll have information about the different ways that I work, both in terms of like the jewelry, but also the wider work that I do. And it will also have a shop so people can, <laughs> can buy it directly. And I guess the other exciting news is actually the November issue. I was featured alongside a great group of um, jewelry designers of Black Heritage in the November issue of Vogue. So that's pretty exciting. I would say if you want to read some more about other makers in this space that are really kind of doing some pretty awesome and interesting work, that get yourself a copy of the November issue of Vogue. In the past, there's been a couple of opportunities to do work like I've been doing like in South Asia with different countries in Africa. Now, in the past, they haven't really kind of come to fruition. Often it's difficult with these things, the timing, you know, you might be involved at the proposal stage or helping to define a program, but by the time it comes online, your commitments, for me, especially with teaching commitments, mean that I might not be able to go at the time that they need people, but it's still nice to see these things come to fruition. But I'm working with someone on a project which I'm hoping I'll be able to be involved with, which could be pretty interesting along the similar lines of some of the things I've been talking about with you today, Sophie, which would be in Zambia. So fingers crossed. Let's see what happens. Amazing. The industry is built on people working hard to improve it. And since we all share a passion for our trade and the objects we produce, it makes sense to invest time to connect with others and share your experiences. If you're not engaged with the industry yet, perhaps you can start thinking of a way to do so now. For now, I would just like to say a 
huge thank you to Melanie Eddy for everything she does and for joining me on the podcast today. I think the conversation was very inspirational. So thank you so much, Melanie. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sophie. Next month, I'll be joined by another guest. So watch this space to find out who it is. For now, this was Sophie Boons for the BHA podcast series, a diverse jewelry career and supporting others with Melanie Eddy. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.